Hello and welcome to the Locked On Canucks Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm Justin Morissette, and this is your Locked On Canucks for Saturday, February 1st, coming to you on the evening after the Canucks have uh, topped the uh, New York Islanders in one of their most exciting games of the season. A pretty good one. Probably Quinn Hughes' best game of the season. A two-goal effort for Quinn. His first multi-goal outing, including the overtime winner as the Canucks beat the Isles 5-4 on the road uh, in Brooklyn. A very, very fine performance when you consider not just the quality of the opponent, but the difficulty of the game. Yes, I always like to think that those morning games on weekends are just more difficult than your standard evening hockey game because of the time, because of your internal clock, because of the travel, so on, etc. And these morning games are almost always on the road because, of course, they're never going to play a game at 10 a.m. at Rogers Arena. So, um, yeah, I, I was very impressed by the game this morning, and we'll talk about it more on the show tomorrow after, uh, of course, the Canucks have another morning game in Carolina against the Hurricanes. But I do feel pretty good about myself right now, having told you on Thursday night that Quinn Hughes likely to outpace his offensive uh, statistical projections this season as far as goal scoring goes because it really does feel like his shot uh, and his willingness to take it and his ability to score with it has really taken off in the last month here as the season has progressed. So he was on pace for 10 goals uh, when we last spoke, but uh, the very next game after I told you he's likely to outpace that, he goes out and scores two and is up to eight on the season. Quinn Hughes has more goals right now than Jordan Eberle, uh, which is a remarkable thing, honestly. Um, But we will talk about that and tomorrow's game in depth tomorrow night. Right now, however, it is time for part two of my chat with Patrick Johnston from the Province Sports from Post Media, writes for the Vancouver Sun as well. Patrick has been writing a number of uh, retrospective features on the 50th season of Vancouver and you know all of the stories that have come uh, from this team's past over the previous 50 years. So uh, his most recent uh, article was about the Pavel Bure trade, sending Pavel and Brett Hedekin to the Florida Panthers with Ed Jovanovsky being the primary piece coming back the other way to Vancouver. If you have not heard part one of this conversation, it came out yesterday, and I would strongly recommend that you go back and listen to that first to get the full picture of our chat because we talked for an awful long time, wound up splitting it up into two episodes. Without further ado, here it is, part two of my conversation with Patrick Johnston of the Province Sports. You uh, you mentioned the hockey universe being a bit of a, of a of a weird place sometimes, and I think that plays out in the story as well. You mentioned that you reached out to Mike Gillis, and and it just didn't yeah. w- work out to to chat with him about it. But he's Pavel's agent at the time that Bure wants yeah. out of Vancouver, and it's so funny to me that like you know you read these stories, and this is a team with a fifty year history at this point, and yet it's just the same people showing up. Yeah. Over and over and over again. It's a 50-year story, but it feels like it yeah. has like maybe seven principal characters in it. Well, you know, and in, in, in any of these guys, you know, any of the guys, you know, there's, they're in it, they're in it, they're in it. You know, and some of them, you know, there's some pretty bright people involved. You know, I mean, guys who got law degrees, you know, you know, Gillis was working in, like, in corporate law before he moved full-time into being an agent. You know, Burke, Burke obviously... You know, he was working for the league, and then he went back to being a GM. And, and uh, you know, I, 
these are guys that are you know especially you know I, I would say especially some of the characters in 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 the Vancouver story you know Pat Quinn obviously another guy who basically went and you know studied the law the <laughs> sort of extra time while he was coaching an NHL hockey team and 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 you know became a lawyer in his own right and, you know I mean I think partly it was to train his brain but you know these are there were some very smart people who could have done all kinds of stuff but you know you ask you know, I ask a lot of these guys, why did you stay in and why do you keep involved? I mean, doesn't this drive you nuts? Because, of the, you know, on the, on the flip side, there's a lot of names that stay in there, stay involved, stay involved forever. And it's, it's not obvious they could do anything. Well, it's not obvious. It's not obvious what they would be in real life. You know, that they know hockey, but and it's not even, you know, it's the 200 hockey men joke. I mean, there's a lot of guys in there that they're kind of being held on because they're all friends with each other, but, you know, what would he do in real life? Oh boy. You sort of go the, the smart guy. What are you doing? Like you could do anything. And they'll, you know, it, at the end of the day, this, it is the thing that unites all of them. The, 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 you know, the guys that are there on, on value, the guys that are there on, on, on who they're friends with. They all like winning, you know, they all want to win. And, and, and it's an addictive thing. And it is why, you know, it is why I think we watch, Sports and why we're drawn to sports because there is that sort of tribal element to it. There's a most there's an emotional core that we can't look away from that we can't that we can't dismiss and and uh, you know it 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 is it is that thing that drives all these guys and it is why you know I mean there there, there is more turnover I think on the hockey side of things that we realize there's probably not enough. You know, there's certainly not enough, I'm not going to lie, in terms of the world of, say, hockey broadcasting. It's the same, you know, for the most part, it's been the same faces on Hockey Night Canada for 20-some years. That's not good for, you know, a, you know, having an evolving understanding of the game. Um, but, you know, like I said, to go back to your original question, the hockey guys are all, you know, in many cases are there because they like winning. And, you know, I think they also just like each other. You know, they, they're... they're there are there are obviously some clear divisions, you know, and 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 you know people who really really don't like each other. But you know, even in those groupings, there's, there's groupings of people that really get along and really enjoy each other's company. And you know, it is a funny thing, though. I mean, like you said, it is kind of funny that you know, we, Gillis. I mean, I tweeted. I think I mentioned it in a Canucks extra recently because I was looking for background stuff and discovering that Brian Burke. Let's be clear. Brian Burke and Mike Gillis do not get along. Um, you know, it, it, it is not. Seems, it seems is safe not to say. Close to, it is not even close to uh, you know unkind. It's 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 further past that. But you know, in 1992, Brian Burke moves to become uh, general manager of the Hartford Whalers, and who does he suggest to Pat Quinn as a potential uh, replacement? But young agent Mike Gillis, who at this point was you know I think seven years out of playing in the National Hockey League, was still a relatively young lawyer. And at that time, obviously, Burke said, well, this is a guy that uh, this is a guy that has some smarts and I think is interesting and has worked as an agent, so he certainly understands that side of the game. Um, and when I kind of put that originally, you know, um, a month or two ago to Tony, I said, hey, do you remember this? Like, Mike Gillis was uh, in consideration for this job? And, and Tony actually at the time said no. But then when I was looking through the Beret stuff, you know, I found a story in our archives from Tony where he made sort of a hop offhand reference to 
the fact that Gillis had decided to turn the job down uh, because essentially he didn't want to be the be the bad cop because it was a bit of a good cop bad cop scenario with with Quinn and his AGM and, and Burke had always been kind of the hard the hard edge and you know George McPhee certainly built that reputation when he was Pat Quinn's AGM and uh, you know Gillis just didn't want to be that guy I mean again to be clear I I sort of asked like at one point do you remember this did this happen is this true and he said perhaps. You know, you didn't really want to get it, but you know, that's so was, funny too yeah. because Brian presents himself in the quotes that he gave you as you know Pavel's best friend, basically, right? Like the guy who yeah. was right there with him from the start, through thick and thin, through it all. Uh, if you'd only been there all along, I would never have left Vancouver. Is what he has Pavel yeah. telling him, but uh, you know, it's probably not entirely true if he has to play the bad cop within that dynamic with Quinn. I. Yeah, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, Quinn, you know, I, I do. It is one of those ones where you know Burke leaves at the end of his first season before any of the bad blood starts popping uh, up, and yeah. you know there is a long. I think there is a long sort of. You know, would it have gone any different? I mean, I guess Burke's trying to suggest maybe so. It's tough to say. I mean, it was a certainly certainly the Gallagher angle was that you know the, the was that you know the Queen and McPhee were. We're trying to trying to you know keep keep costs low. Never thought that there was really going to be growth. They were they were you know really really tough in their negotiations. You know perhaps especially. I mean this is his perspective. So you know I'm just relaying that. I don't really have an opinion on it one way or another. But mm-hmm. his position is essentially that they were perhaps hard. In fact, they were harder even on their star players than other players. Harder than they should have been. Um, you know, and that there are multiple, and as was documented by him at the time, there were multi, there was sort of a long series of issues leading up to about you know the summer of 1994 that just sort of Pavel said, "This isn't. I've had enough." And it's you know, in fact, at, you know, he signs his contract in 1994. This you know, this I guess five five year deal, four year deal, five year deal, but basically says, "I don't want to sign this. I want you to trade me," which was. You know, if you're counting the second time, he essentially said trade me because he had actually asked for a trade in, uh, I believe, the fall of 93 when, you know, they were initially talking about a new contract and, and you know, I, I think agreed to a number. But, you know, according according to, you know, the reporting was essentially that, and I don't think the Canucks ever really actually disputed this, but, you know, it was that essentially the number was agreed, um which was going to match, I believe, the Fedorov and McGilvey contracts. But when Bure actually sat down to sign it, the numbers were actually in Canadian dollars, not American dollars. And that was, you know, just kind of like, what are you doing? Like, this is, this is, this is, this is not chump change. Why are, you know, why are you messing around with me? And, you know, I, it's one of those ones where I, like I said, you know, you get, you get the feeling of disrespect, but if that's, is that you know there were already a couple of things that Burr has alluded to. I think he was never terribly happy with the Canucks um, sort of treatment of him. You know, which you know, I, I guess fair enough. Like I, I can't speak to how people think they should be treated. And, and um, you know, and the other thing too. I mean, it's it's sort of amazing to look on the flip side of things. You know, just go back to that Larry Arnold story. <coughs> you know, <coughs> essentially that. You know, you know, Igor had said, 
you know, quite publicly, you know, I do not want, I do not want any more of my contract going to the Russian Hockey Federation. Um, you know, they're basically just trying to take my money and run. You know, it's a bunch of mobsters, and and uh, you know that basically the, the Canucks were in the same vein, and so they refused. And you know, whereas there was there had been a possibility, you know that. I, I guess the I don't quite understand it, but I guess the Flames because they were in a similar predicament with Sergey Makarov, you know. So for so for people who don't know, the Canucks had gotten um, Igor Larionov and Vladimir Krutov, who were two thirds of the, the the you know the Soviet Union's national team um, first line. The third guy being this guy Sergey Makarov, who actually changed the rule for Rookie of the Year because he won I believe won the Rookie of the Year in 1990 at the age of, you know, I think he was 28 or 30 or something like that. And that's why the Calder Trophy is now is 25 and under trophy. Sorry, uh, sorry, Jordan Bennington. Yeah, right? <laughs> but, uh, um, but you know, I mean, it essentially was that, you know, that Makarov was on a similar deal, but basically Doug Risborough, who was the Flames general manager at the time, basically told the Russian the representatives, the lawyers who were, you know, acting on behalf of the Russian Hockey Federation in Canada basically said, no, it, it was more like, I'm going to offer you this much and that's it. And you can take that or leave it. And that's going to be that. And essentially, you know, I, I you know, the, I, I, I have heard that, you know, there was an argument, the Canucks could have done that. They said, no, we're just not doing this at all. And then basically it became an issue that Larry Adam didn't want anything to do with. And that's why he went back to Switzerland. You know, the, the fatal flaw in all that in the end was that for some reason, I mean, the, whether the Canucks didn't believe that Lariano could still play or not, it seems to be one theory. But, you know, at the end of the day, they they let him, left him exposed in the waiver draft. And San Jose said, well, shoot, we may not be able to sign him right away, but maybe we can get him next year. And And they did. And, you know, I mean, Igor Larionov, and this is what I was going to mention, I got this email from a reader, um, a fellow, you know, who had been a huge Canucks fan at the time and had essentially, for, you know, family reasons, had actually ended up in Switzerland um, for a, a amount of time during that Larionov season where he was playing for Lugano in the, in the, the Swiss, a, Swiss A-League. And... And went and interviewed, you know, essentially pretended to be a reporter. <laughs> excuse me, and went and you know interviewed Larionov and, and met with him after a game and, and sent me the transcript of the interview. And it, none of it was it, it's not especially astounding, but it does you know it reveals a little bit of the character of the time. You know, I think Larionov he really liked Vancouver. He really wanted to come back, and they really liked the lifestyle here. And it was you know obviously having come from Russia it was a a real change and a change they really liked. Um, you know, so I think there was a door that was open there. And, and, you know, certainly, you know, Quinn made a lot of good moves, but he also made a lot of really poor moves. And, and that, you know, I think was one of them. And that, you know, to come back again to us, just talking about the connecting future, that, that's that been one of the interesting ones, has been sort of realizing the sort of ups and downs and, uh, and you know, funny, funny dead ends that, that exists in the, you know in any timeline, but obviously exists in this particular timeline, uh, and it all seems you know so funny. It, it all seems so familiar, and, and 
not, and, and that's not a bad thing. It's just, it, it's a story that we've heard and, you know, it is kind of a fun story because it is a team that obviously we've been paying attention to for so long. Yeah. I, I don't know like how much of that is just, you know, frugality uh, that's part of like a management philosophy or how much of it is like imposed by ownership as part of the reality of managing right. a Canadian franchise in the mid nineties, because, you know, things were very difficult economically there as far as the, how the dollars stacked up for, for quite a while as well. Right. Well, that was, yeah, absolutely. That was a huge factor. And I mean, I think the reality is too, as I've written, you know, I wrote last summer when I sort of took on the idea of what the hell the Calgary Flames who are owned by oil barons need public money to build an arena for yeah. Vancouver built an arena and our owner had no money. You know, and when I wrote the story, I had a great chat with Arthur Griffiths about it because we talked about a lot of stuff. And, you know, I mean, he's told the story many times, but it was, you know, again, reiterated essentially the issue, you know, was that uh, the the terms of the Grizzlies' expansions caught them off guard, left them, you know, underpowered and, and, and resulted in, you know, him having to run a really quite tight budget. And, you know, certainly... The story was great. The Griffiths, I think, you know, were, were passionate, well-intentioned owners, uh, you know, and I think, I think, but at the same time, in relative terms, they certainly would never be able to buy a team today, even then. I mean, they had some money, but they weren't, you know, the, the, the you know the extremely wealthy person you have to be to run a team now, and um, you know, I mean, that's that 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 is, you know, a small part of the story, but at the end of the day, you sort of touched on it. It was like, you know, there was a bit of a frugality involved and part of me kept thinking about the realities, especially of that time, of, of, you know, finances and what the Griffiths were running into. At the same time, you've got Brian Burke as the GM, you know, some 10 years later, uh, just allowing like RJ Umberger to hold out forever, you know? So like there, there's there's egos and stubbornness involved as well. I was in high school at the time. I would have been probably yeah, I mean, 16. Was, that 15. one, I mean, that one, I think, I mean, that was a, <coughs> excuse me, that one, I think in hindsight was a, was, I think a pretty big misfire. I think, I think they, 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 I think they picked a player. I mean, it wasn't Steve Francis level, but I think they picked a player who, you know, I think you're right. I think, first of all, Burke was never certainly pleased with Umberger, but I don't think Umber, I think Umberger kind of, I mean, I think his camp kind of stayed in that anyway. I think they realized, that here's a way for us really to get a way out. I don't think they were ever terribly interested in playing here anyway. Um, you know, and I think that was a bit of, you know, the, the, that that was not a terrible, I mean, it, it's it's sort of the prelude to a good a, a good blip in drafting from the Canucks, but that was not a terribly good tra- drafting era. Obviously, picking in, in not always the most advantageous spots in, in an era where teams were not terribly good at figuring out what a late first-round pick should be. Um but nonetheless, I, I do think, you know, Umberger had a nice career, but he, he didn't end up turning out to be anything amazing. And, and you know, what, was there really an argument that he really was a first-round pick? I'm not sure in hindsight. Um, there's certainly nothing jumped out at him that said this has to be a guy that is, has potential but oozes over another. Certainly not in the way we understand first-round picks now. Um, so I think that was a little more complicated than just simply saying Brian Burke wouldn't pay him what he wanted. That's, that's fair. I'm just saying, you know, you, you guys were talking on the white towel earlier this week about how, you know, that 2003 team is the Canucks team that should have gone on a yeah. run to the cup yeah. final and possibly won it all. And I know it's 
what if, uh, all things, all sorts of things could have changed. I'm just saying your first round pick in 2001 probably could have been a nice depth piece on that team. Oh, yeah. Who and knows I, how things yeah. play out differently, you know? And, and I think that's essentially my point is that I think <clears throat> at the end of the day, at that spot, I'm just going to, I'm actually bringing the draft up here, but I, you know, yeah. So 16th overall, which let's be honest, even now is not probably going to be a big impact player unless it's 2007 but, and you draft uh claude Giroux, really yeah but like you know let's be honest who came after you know there's sean morrison yeah. who was you know a tidy defenseman i'm biased i knew sean grew up on the same block as me but you know tidy defenseman but but you know not not a star carlo koliakovo who you know i think he ran into injury issues never turned into much uh, Colby Armstrong, who I think is probably better on TV than I really give him credit for, or gave him credit for. I think he's really grown as a broadcaster. You know, Tim Gleason was a pretty nice hard rock defenseman for a long time, but not changing anything. Derek Roy, who we know well, was drafted in the second round. Feder Tootin, you know, good big Russian defenseman. Mike Camilleri, probably the best pick of the second round. Jason, or uh, it's Camilleri. Who's better, Camilleri or Jason Palmaville? Who would you rather have? Uh, in their prime, I would go Mike Camilleri probably. Just because of the wheels? Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, yeah. I mean, they played the same. They both played 15 years. Palmaville got 154 more games. So you get 1,000. But, you know, I mean, it's not like, you know, Placadich went in the third, or third round. So, you know, there are guys that came after the Patrick Sharp went in late in the third round. You know, there are guys that went in this draft that were probably miscast. Christian Erhoff goes in the fourth round. Yeah. And, and, you know, in an era where drafting was obviously very different, Kyle Wellwood, fifth round. So, you're right. I mean, picking Umberger and getting nothing for him, essentially, um, you know, a huge blunder there for sure. Oh, yeah. You're talking now about what else they could have had there. I'm just saying, you know, just let bygones be bygones and sign the guy and, and play him. And well, who knows I, what happens two years later, too. Ever, I don't yeah, think that's fair. That's fair. But uh, anyway, let's, let's move on from our retard <laughs> let's, let's stop remembering some guys from the 20, uh, 2001 draft. But yeah. uh, it's funny how things work out, though, because you mentioned Pavel wanted to be traded in the summer of 94. You know, ultimately, his yeah. number does go up to the rafters. Uh, he is one yeah. of the most beloved players in franchise history. But, like, what you didn't write about as part of the piece because you talked to all the principals involved and this is kind of more of the fan angle to it is just how much bad blood and sour grapes there was within the fan base over this trade and i think there were some people who were on pavel's side and did agree that he had been mistreated all along but there was a large contingent i mean even up to the point where his jersey was being retired who still felt like the way this guy asked out and the way he wanted to leave is inexcusable and you should never reward him with a jersey retirement you know that has sort of died down as the years go on but if he had asked out and left immediately after the 94 cup run i don't think that jersey ever gets retired oh god no i mean it it, it is it is a great point in terms of trying to think about his narrative um you know so in 94 in general i mean that's not really publicly known there was a there was a a story that came out during the playoffs or that was sort of leaking during the playoffs uh, that Bray had sort of insisted that he get traded or, you know, give me a contract right now or I'm getting traded, which, which 
was not true. And Beret, one of the this is another one of the things that frustrated him. He felt that essentially there wasn't a big enough, quick enough defense mounted in his honor uh, against such allegations. I think he had suspicions that it was, uh, you know, inside Canucks management it wasn't Pat Quinn. But, uh, you know, I think you can probably draw some conclusions who it might have been. I'm not going to say because I don't know that for sure. Um, but, you know, he was upset about that. And, you know, I think that, I, I can't remember, I, I'm trying, I can't remember the timeline now. I can't remember if that came out then or not. But, uh, you know, if you go into 95, 94, 95, which, you know, apparently it took some coaxing him to get him to come play because of stuff around how his contract worked during the lockout. Um, you know, but now, you know, they get they get Alex McGilney, and by all accounts, he was excited to see Alex McGilney coming in, another star, another Russian, um, you know, a, a sign of a team that's trying to make things happen. And he blows his knee out, you know, in a... You know, a bit of a rough check from Gary Suter. Catches his knee in the ice. He's out for months and months and months. Comes back. Has a terrible season. Um, people were despondent. 96-97, I don't think people realize how how worried they were. Because Bray wasn't confident. He only scored, I think, 30 goals. He didn't look that good. Uh, you know, so I think that... I think in many ways, that kind of through line built up a lot of sympathy for him. And then when he comes in that last season, 97-98, scores 51 goals, plays a ton, the team is terrible, it's falling apart all around him, but Mike Keenan loves him. He, it turns out, just absolutely loved playing for Mike Keenan. Uh, you know, I think that also, you know, I think that kind of turned, or not turned, I think that solidified fan feeling for him. And when he held out, you're right, I mean, there were a lot of people that were very upset. Um but I think it's so interesting, you know, and I, of course, was, you know, like I said, I was in high school, I was a fan then, that team was so terrible, and they were blowing everything up. And it's sort of, you know, it's kind of like, we need to get, I mean, Burry, Burry is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he is the last guy from that uh, Stanley Cup run, essentially, on that team. Um, and 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 is gone. He's the last guy traded, uh, him and Hedekin. And you know, it, it it is a case of I think a little bit of time heal time heals all wounds. We've certainly seen the highlights enough. You know, the goals. I think a lot of a lot of the highlights we see actually. You know, there's other than that preseason kick, you know, puck to to skate goal. I think '96. You know, a lot of the highlights we do see are actually from that '93 '94 season, not just from the playoffs. Obviously, there's the playoff goals, but yeah, there's a there's a few other highlights from the regular season that that we often see kicked around. And you know, I, I think that also helped. You know, people kind of forgot why the split happened. You know, I think people try to do hold on to good memories. You well, know. We're watching the same thing happen with Ryan Kessler right now on some level, right? Uh, yeah, it's gonna be interesting. I mean, I. I that that was going to be interesting to me because I think there was so much. It wasn't just the way he left. I think there was still, there was a lot of blood in the water. I think there was a lot of there was a lot of sort of off the ice stuff that I think frustrated people that people knew about. 
uh, in a way that didn't exist with Beret. Yeah, I, well, Beret. I, I've talked about this before as well. It's the, the you know contrasting him with Luongo, who became a sympathetic figure because we could see yeah. the way that management and coaching staffs, multiple different coaching staffs, in fact, had kind of jerked him around before he finally you know got traded back to Florida. Uh, like there was sympathy there in watching the way he was treated. And if you were on Pavel's side of the Pavel Bure split, there was sympathy there from the way he was treated. Kessler was treated like perfectly. Tortorella was playing him, uh, you know, as many as 23 minutes a night. I think he was like the third highest time on ice average in the league behind like Crosby and I don't even know who else, possibly Jonathan Taves. Those were your top three skaters in the league that year. And he was still acting hard done by and like he needed to get out of here. You know, it it shouldn't be so, but it is, it is true. I mean, charisma and, 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 uh, you know, personal attractiveness does matter in these sorts of things. And, and obviously we, we came to learn of Roberto's, charisma I think more uh than we did at the beginning. Um Bray certainly has a lot of sex appeal. I think that's a lot of it too, to be honest. Um uh, conscious or conscious or unconscious, you know, this is a you know, fit, handsome, interesting guy. Uh, you know, he drove a shiny sports car around town and, and women swooned after the him. The number one hunk of Vancouver. You know, I mean it was true. It was a true fact. Yeah, that, no, absolutely. You know, that, you know so so, you know, and, and you know, I you know that it's truth is that you know, whether they like it or not, men swoon after guys <laughs> like that. And and you know, the, the people love the Gino and Pavel buddy story. They were such good friends, that total outsiders thing. Um there were there was lots there were lots of good elements to that story. And and so when you know, and there had been attempts I think to retire his number before. It wasn't like this was this was out of the blue. Yeah. But Gillis being his former agent, I think finally convinced him that there was that game when he flew back to the year, you know, I think I think partway through the season before when he came back and, and was just a guest of the Canucks. And just made contact well, again in on, in any form at all, right? Well I remember, yeah, they put him on the screen. I think I mean I think I was at home watching on T V, but they put him on the screen and you know, you could see the emotion in his face. I think he he and he said afterwards, he said, I didn't know. And I think he genuinely meant that. He said, I didn't know how people would feel because, you know, I, you know, he, you know, it is a bit what you alluded to, you know, that, that he, you know, at the end of the day, he broke it off. He wanted out. He was the one that dumped us. And, and, you know, he knows that he's not an idiot and, you know, he is human like the rest of us. And, and, you know, certainly could imagine how people might feel and you can see where that, might come from and I think he was genuinely touched by the ovation he received. I mean this was the, certainly at the time, you know, obviously this was still the Sedines were still playing and we're, we're pushing him for best Canuck ever status, but certainly in terms of the Pantheon, there was nobody higher than him and uh and and people knew that and people let him know that that's how they felt. It was it was a remarkable thing and and you know as someone who enjoyed loved watching him play and you know, consistently answers the, you know, when the question gets put, you know, what, which player would you like to see healthy again, give another chance? Pavel Bray is my answer because, you know, he, he, his knees gave out on him and that just wasn't fair. This was a guy who made everything happen because of his legs. He was immensely fit. He worked hard, um, you know, harder than anyone really to keep himself in good shape. 
And, uh, you know, his body quit on him, and that's just not fair. I mean, some of us are not in good shape, and our bodies are still running fine. It, it's, it is the strangest of humanity, and, and the fact that Beret, you know, when he was healthy, he was such an unbelievable goal scorer. Um, you know, I think it's something that I will always think about, and I've always enjoyed. It was certainly, in the end, was the fact I got to essentially write twice about Pavel Bure in the last, uh, you know, month or so was, was a real treat. So ahead of his time, really, too, in that style of play. Like, that is what we associate with hockey today, you know, that yeah. kind of speed, skill game, but, you know, was kind of uh, an exception back then. Guys like him and, and Solani both, like, you wonder if they could just be dropped uh, as 20-year-olds into today's oh, yeah. game, yeah, what they yeah. would oh, do, absolutely. and, you know, it's... Yeah. Would be a, a hell of a hypothetical. Anyways, uh, Patrick, we have been talking for so long here. Yeah, uh, this kind of turned into like a you know discussion on the uh, the ethics and philosophies of journalism in some ways as well. Yeah. But I, I mentioned you were not able to uh, squeeze in the fan angle to the Burray trade article that you wrote. That's because you have to stuff all of this history within the confines of however many inches you have uh, on the page yeah. on a given day. Uh, you guys have done so many retrospective interviews now over the course of this season as you've you know whether it's you or Kuzma or Ed Willis or any number of the guys part of that you and JJ Adams absolutely that whole team has been diving into the past of this team you could basically take everything that you've gotten so far and I'm sure there's more to come before the end of the year Mm -hmm. and turn it into this big oral history of you know, fifty years of this franchise. Are there yeah. uh, plans for the reporting that you guys have done this year beyond just the articles that have shown up in the paper? Is this uh, potentially going to turn into a, a, a like retrospective book at some point? Um, I'm not the guy that makes the decisions, but I certainly know there's been discussions. Uh, you know, I mean, there is a there is a you know, I mean. It, it, the stories have been edited, edited certainly, and, and are obviously you know been on, down on the page, um, you know, and we've done it before. There have been been you know the 2011 run. They put a book together and, and collected the um, you know the reporting on there, and um, you know, and, and and it's happened in previous anniversary seasons. Uh, so I, I I do think there is discussion about it. I don't. Uh, I don't know anything beyond that, um, but uh, you know you have to sort of line things up with a publisher and, and and you know figure out how you want to do it. And, and obviously, the good thing is that, you know <laughs> obviously we've already got the writing done and we own all the pay, all the photos, so it's not like you're chasing after things like that. Yeah. Um, but you know you know you don't just sort of pile up pile a book off willy-nilly you need, you need to actually make a, a proper yeah you know, get it thread get a, get thread a book it together publisher. yeah you know a proper book publisher proper you know book editor and, and that sort of thing but yeah I, I i do think it's very much a possibility um you know don't 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 take that to the bank but uh <laughs> the bank isn't closed either, I suppose, is the way to put it. Well, uh, happy to hear that. Maybe a little little scoop for those of uh, uh, you out there who have listened to all 61 minutes of this conversation now. <laughs> right yeah, at good the job. end. Way to make it to the end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Patrick, uh, thank you so much for doing this, man. Um, obviously, people can find your work uh, in the province and uh, online uh, through the websites and the newspaper as a physical copy as well, if people still yeah. do that. Uh, where else can people find your 
Well, like, as you mentioned, yeah, so the province, uh, the province.com, provincesports.com, uh, VancouverSun.com. Um, you know, we have a white, as you alluded to, we have a white towel podcast, which, uh, you know, generally, generally hosted by Paul Chapman, and I'm there, uh, reasonably often, and Coos is there, and Ed Willis shows up. And, I'm, I'm well uh, acquainted with this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you've heard of it, have you? Yeah, I have. Yeah, when you were talking about dust-ups <laughs> and people confronting you over things you've written, I thought, oh, oh I don't have any experience well, I, with that know, as far it, as players it worked, go. But it worked, it worked out in the end, but you learned a lot about how to, how to make comments on Twitter. I, I did, yes. Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway, yeah, so there's, you know, that's, that's obviously available in your favorite podcast places. Uh, we're on YouTube. I think it's the Province Online, and I'm of course on Twitter at Rising Action, and on Instagram, Patty J on the Road, where I try to document the best and the best and mostly the most lighthearted aspects of covering a team. Must uh, follow if you are a Canucks fan right and who are not following Patty J on the Road. It is essential stuff. You know, I don't get to be a beat reporter, unfortunately, Patrick, but uh, I do get to live the experience through your photos, and I appreciate that. The, uh, you know, I shared, a, I, I did a little walk around Brooklyn today. I took some photos of Chelsea Pier where they were practicing. Did a cute little video that involved Jeff Patterson. The possibilities are endless. Well, uh, thank you so much, man. Uh, it took eight years to get us together. Let's uh, see if we can do this a little sooner than that. I'll, I'll text you tomorrow. Podcast? <laughs> hey, man. If you, if you are interested, I could add a seventh podcast to my plate. Why not? <laughs> All right, buddy. Thanks, Patrick. Take care. Bye. There it is. Patrick Johnston uh, joining me in conversation here on Locked on Canucks. A pleasure chatting with Patrick. And uh, as I mentioned, hopefully it won't be eight years until we do this again on a podcast. Of course, Patrick and I have spoken in person many, many times over that period. It's not like this is a conversation that I waited eight years to have, though with the length of it, who knows? Maybe Patrick had a lot to get off his chest over the years. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, the show over the last couple days. Again, I will be breaking down the weekend's games between uh, you know the Canucks and the Islanders and the Canucks and the Hurricanes on Sunday evening after the Super Bowl. So look forward to that. And then, of course, a full slate of shows coming your way next week as well. Uh, but uh, thank you to Patrick Johnston for joining me on the show over the last couple days here. I hope uh, you got a kick out of hearing us go down uh, memory lane on a number of different fronts, uh, remembering some guys from the 2001 NHL entry draft. Uh, Yeah, it was a heck of a conversation. Uh, Until tomorrow, if you want to do me a solid, as I often mention, you can head on over to the iTunes store, the Apple Podcasts app, whatever it's called now. Throw me a rating and a review if you are so inclined. If you've rated the show before but have not reviewed it, maybe think about circling back and and kicking a review our way. I always appreciate reading the good things that uh, you folks have to say about this show. It's like free therapy for me. So uh, if you enjoy the program and want to do me a solid, you can do that. That's always nice. Uh, And you can come on back tomorrow when I've got uh, some post-game reaction for you as well. Until then, I have been and will continue to be Justin Morissette, and you've been locked in on Locked On Canucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.